Welcome to the Girl Gang Craft Podcast, where we dive in deep to all things business, wellness, creativity, and activism for artists and entrepreneurs. We talk with impactful, female-driven companies and founders for an inside look at the entrepreneurial experience, where you'll come away with tangible steps to elevate your business. Are you ready? I'm your host, Phoebe Sherman, founder of Girl Gang Craft, artist and designer and marketing obsessed. We're here to learn together how to expand our revenue, implement new organizational techniques, and cultivate best business practices as we work towards creating a life doing what we love. Let's get started. At the time of this podcast, there is still time to join us for Girl Gang Craft Summer School. Now, the last class is Brand Partnerships. That is the class that will be going live August 6th on Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So what are brand partnerships, right? Brand partnerships are simply partnering with other brands. And so this can be like partnering with people within your community, like other brands that you've done craft fairs with or you see on Instagram. But this can also mean partnering with big brands. And partnering with big brands mean big budgets, yeah? So AKA, you can work with a big company to get paid for various menu items, if you will. Girl Gang Craft has utilized brand partnerships in the past, mostly at events, right? So these big brands pay us to have a footprint in real life at these events. But in 2020, we haven't had any events. So we've had to get creative. Um, And we talked about this in the multiple revenue stream podcast, right? We've been working with brands on podcast commercials, on digital content. So we just teamed up with Adobe for a really cool Instagram TV series. So that is an example of a brand partnership. So in this class, we're going to teach you how to pitch these brands and how to nurture these relationships, what to even offer them and then how to see that through. So if you have any sort of curiosity at all about how this works, hop into the class. It'll be a blast. So again, you can sign up at girlgangcraft.com slash summer school for that last class on brand partnerships. Again, that's happening, happening August 6th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Hope to see you there. Hey, all really excited for our podcast guest today. We have Allie Kriegsman, and Allie is the co-founder and COO of Bulletin. Uh, you've probably seen us shout out Bulletin before. We love them. So they're a venture-backed retail technology startup on the rise. Named a Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient and one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, Allie has spent the last four years building a brand and platform that democratizes access to physical retail space for digitally native brands. Since launching in 2015, Bulletin has helped hundreds of brands access physical retail space for the very first time, unlocking one of the most powerful commerce channels at their disposal. In addition to helping emerging brands grow their physical footprint, Bulletin's marketplace helps retailers access vetted, foolproof products for their stores. Check them out at bulletin.co and follow Allie at Allie Kriegs, that's A-L-I-K-R-I-E-G-S on Instagram. Allie will be publishing her first book, 
How to Build a Goddamn Empire with Abrams Books on April 6, 2021. Hi, Allie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. How are you, Phoebe? I'm good. How are you? So good to have you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to finally connect. I'm well. I'm definitely like very warm, but overall, I'm doing as as good as one can be given the circumstances that we're all in. Yeah, it's hot in New York. It is hot. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Well, let's start. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Bulletin and how you got started? Yeah, I'll try to give you the abridged version because we've been around for a little over five years now with some exciting twists and turns. But I started Bulletin about five years ago with my co-founder and our CEO, Alana Branston. Bulletin actually began as a consumer-facing marketplace, kind of a more like elevated, sophisticated Etsy. We've always been really passionate about helping independent businesses and helping small brands build their empires and just get access to resources and opportunities that they may not be able to otherwise. And so the business began as an online marketplace, consumer-facing, as I mentioned. Eventually, we evolved and we decided to focus on offline retail and helping brands get their products out there into the real world. So we actually ran pop-ups for about a full year in 2016 every weekend out in Williamsburg and Bushwick and other parts of Brooklyn. We ended up bringing that business model indoors for about two and a half years. We ran our own stores and pioneered a co-retailing model. Brands paid a monthly membership fee to have their products in a bulletin space, and then they could host events and programming and do workshops in the store to connect with their online audiences in person. By the end of 2018, we had a pretty crazy wait list of over 3,000 brands. Even though we were running three stores in New York, we were only able to work with about like 30 to 40 brands per store. And so we really felt like we needed to build a new solution that helped brands get into physical retail, but into retail stores that weren't necessarily our own. So we built our own wholesale platform between 2018 and 2019. We launched the platform at the end of 2019. And that's what we've been doing since then. We basically power wholesale business for independent brands and we facilitate brand discovery and order management for thousands of independent retailers around the country as well. That's so exciting. Well, congrats on your journey. I mean, so many, so many stages of bulletin. Yeah, I waver between feeling like that's super embarrassing and something I'm not super proud of and then also feeling really just fortunate and proud that we've been able to listen and pivot and evolve over the years to help our our brands as best we can and as many brands as we can. But depends on the day. (laughs) I guess today I'll say I'm proud. There we go. That's so funny. I mean, I think, you know, we've all learned at least this year that if you can't be flexible, you don't have a business. So... Definitely, definitely. I guess, yeah, we learned that lesson a few times over prior to to COVID and all the implications this year. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about how you were building Bulletin as a side hustle initially. You were working at Contently. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I met my co-founder and our CEO, Alana, at Contently. We were both in sales. I'm actually a writer by trade. That's kind of like my secret power, my secret sauce. I believe that Everyone has like some sort of magic power, and that is mine. I'm, you know, I studied writing in college. I have a book coming out next year. But yeah, basically, she came up with the idea for the first iteration of Bulletin. It was the year that Etsy had changed their seller policies, or maybe the year after, and that marketplace was getting flooded with 
you know, mass produced goods from Alibaba, it kind of started to feel like eBay. And we felt like, you know, these very like quality, thoughtful designers and brands were getting overshadowed on the marketplace and they needed a new home, so to speak. And Alana knew that I was a writer by trade. And she just kind of asked me if I would be interested in teaming up to be the editor in chief of Bulletin at the time, basically writing long form editorial and interviews about the incredible designers we were featuring on the site. And for me, I was just really interested in building out my creative portfolio. I didn't want to be in sales forever. And so I really saw teaming up with her as just kind of like a personal, like slightly selfish way to accomplish my larger goals of getting paid to do creative work such as writing. And yeah, that's kind of how it all began. We worked on it like on the weekends and like stowed away, you know, for a few hours here and there after work every day. But it was super casual. Like the site was built on Squarespace. It was a dropship model. So we didn't own any inventory. It was all just kind of cobbled together with like readily available platforms and plugins that were pretty affordable. It was like a really great low overhead business. But yeah, it was just like very fun. And, you know, I think she frankly had a larger vision for it and more ambition tied to it and where Bulletin could go than I did initially. I was 24. I was a little bit younger. I was newer to my career. I wasn't, you know, super hungry for that type of risk. But as we started building it together, and I think about a year and a half in, we got a $20,000 grant from Y Combinator. They were then running a program called YC Fellowship which doesn't exist anymore, but we were able to secure that 20K by getting into that program and getting remote support and training from the partners there. And that was January 2016. So that was kind of the trigger that pushed us into doing Bulletin full time. But yeah, we really did just work on it in like the evenings and weekends and, you know, spent like pretty little to get it up and running and and run it day to day before obviously going full time with the business. And the story goes on from there. And what is it like working on something with a co-founder? I'm so grateful to have a co-founder and to have Alana specifically as my co-founder. I talk to, you know, small and medium-sized businesses and even big businesses through my mentors day in and day out. And I think being a solo founder is so challenging and complicated and taxing. I mean, you know, obviously, as a solo founder in ways that I'll never really be able to fully resonate with or understand. And I have so much respect for that. Working with a co-founder, you know, means you have like a shoulder to cry on, a sounding board. I serve as her sounding board a ton, a gut check on your decisions, a gut check on how you're making decisions and what those different, you know, facets of your decision making look like. You can bear the responsibility together. You share the highs, you share the lows. You have like a creative collaborator, you know, at your disposal at all times. And I just feel very fortunate. I think both of us are at our best when we're working in partnership. I've I've been that way for most of my life. So I'm just really thankful for her for inviting me along on on the journey. And I will say too, I think having having a co-founder has definitely showed me my strengths as well as my weaknesses. It can kind of serve as like a mirror in certain ways where you have to kind of look at the other person and own up to where you fall short where you shine, what you love to do, what you hate to do, what parts of the business bring you fulfillment, what parts of the business wear you out, what parts of the business it's, you know, your best delegating out. And so it's definitely been like a personal learning experience for me in that way as well, just kind of understanding all those parts of me and and having a partner to 
you know, put a spotlight on that, which has been helpful in so many ways. It's so beautiful. That sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I want, I want that. I want one of those. <laughs> I mean, I have friends that are very like involved, involved in the business. Yeah. So I, I feel grateful for the sounding board, but you know, they're not, they're not getting paid. So <laughs> yeah, they're just, they're, it's another thing. <laughs> it's so, it's so different and so valuable when you have someone who's like financial future and like, reputation and like their time, like they feel as passionate and as strongly about making the thing work as you do. And I think that's, I'm just so thankful to have that. Like you, you feel like you're in this fight with someone that cares just as much as you. That's beautiful. And yeah. How do you guys go about delegating your tasks and who's in charge of like what teams and how you guys divide that work? Yeah, I feel like that became really clear really quickly. I think from the outset, Alana and I were both slightly like very just candid and ego free about what we liked doing and what we were good at versus what each of us respectively like sucked at and the parts that the parts of the business that maybe one of us should not be focusing on because it wouldn't give the business its best shot. So I think being upfront about that from the beginning and really owning your strengths and weaknesses from the jump has helped us kind of naturally like build and delegate in the right direction and take on the right parts of the business as we've grown together and scaled. So I run the growth team. So I basically am kind of in charge of supply and demand. So building up the number of brands on our marketplace, the number of retailers, making sure that you know, there's a wide variety of brands and that, you know, we're tapping into a wide retailer network as well. I also run marketing, social, product marketing and communications, PR, pretty much everything external facing tied to marketing sales and growth. I also now oversee like the merchandising team. So making sure that the site always looks great, that we're spotlighting the right brands in the right seasons and just kind of feeding retailers the right inventory at the right time. Alana oversees our product and engineering teams as well as legal, HR, you know, kind of grand vision planning and where we go from here, how we can constantly optimize and refine the product to make it like stickier and just better for all of our customers. And she also manages kind of investor relations and just like overall financial planning, budgeting for the business. And can you talk a little bit about how you got to that? Like how how was it, what was it like growing your team? We can talk about funding in a second, but like how, what was it like growing your team, finding an office and building the product with a group that kept on getting bigger? Yeah, it's had its highs and lows. And I think we've made a lot of... um great choices and definitely some mistakes and had some learning experiences along the way. I had never grown a team before. I had like managed at previous jobs and I have worked at previous companies. I worked all through college. So I kind of knew what like a safe and productive like corporate environment or work environment should look and feel like. So that was really like my only point of reference. Alana, as I said, is um, slightly older, more experienced. And she really led us on like how we're building out the team, what parts of the team we're building out first, how we prioritize which hires, what our budget looks like for each team and each hire. She's also led point on like when we actually moved into an office space, what the budget looked like for that office space. But it's definitely been a bumpy and wild ride. I mean, we've evolved so much as a business and pivoted a few times, as I mentioned. So it's definitely been really 
challenging to both grow the team and make sure that we always have the right people as the company is constantly shifting and evolving and the product has changed so dramatically. So yeah, I think it's definitely been like a big learning experience for me and for my future. I think that, you know, it's gotten easier over time to really look at the business and identify like what the business needs and why. I think that, you know, previously we weren't as I wouldn't say that we weren't as as sharp about that, but you know, there are so many things wrong with the business all the time. Like you maybe relate to that from running a business, like nothing is ever perfect and there are so many things that you can you know, hire against so many things that you can invest resources in, so many things that you can attach people to within the business to try to help, you know, certain aspects of the business. And I think that was always very overwhelming. And we wanted to just like hire, hire, hire against all those things all the time. So I think the biggest learning has been like really refining and focusing on what parts of the business are most important and making sure that we're hiring around those needs rather than just kind of hiring to fill in every single gap immediately and not being as careful and thoughtful about where we expended those resources. Totally. And how big is your team right now? We are eight people. Okay. And everyone's remote right now. And how is how is that going? How is being remote with your team right now? It's been interesting. I think all of us have been doing our very best. I've been so impressed with the team's just like energy and resilience. You know, we have a morning touch base as a team every day at 10 a.m. Everyone shows up, you know, with big smiles on their face and ready to report on what they worked on the day before, what their blockers are, what they're getting ready to work on for that day. And, you know, we obviously rely heavily on Zoom for all of this. We also do work break Wednesdays. So every Wednesday, two individuals on the team come together and basically plan a like non-work related activity for everyone to jump in on. So we've done, you know, trivia games. We've done like fun emoji based games. We've done like yoga and stretching together. So it's definitely nice to try to build that sense of camaraderie and community even when we're all far apart. I think it's definitely wearing on us. I mean, a lot of our employees have not a lot, but you know, two of them have children. So that's definitely been taxing on them in a way that I will never understand. I don't have children. I'm not juggling with a, you know, full-time job and childcare at home at the same time. So you know, really trying to be just sympathetic to that and understanding of that is something Alana and I have been really focused on over the past few months. But I think we're all really eager to reconnect when we can. We're hoping to be back in the office in some capacity by September. So we're actually hunting right now to try to find a flexible office space because we we actually ended up leaving our office lease in March because of coronavirus, just not knowing how long we'd be, you know, out of commission for. That makes sense. I mean, I yeah, I, I think that's probably a smart thing to do. I mean, I've talked to so many people who are just sort of, their companies have said indefinitely they're not coming back, basically. So there's sort of this exodus from San Francisco, really. Everyone's leaving the I've city and moving that. away. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, same yeah. thing in New York. Like a few of our employees just, you know, canceled their leases or their leases were up in, in the city at some point during shelter in place and they didn't renew and they're either staying with family or staying with their partner's family and just kind of waiting it out and, and seeing what happens. So it's, yeah, it's definitely been like an absolutely wild time. And we're we're also trying to respect that like, you know, this has had large financial implications on, well, our customers, of course, but our team as well. So we we want to be flexible and be responsive to that and not make it 
a requirement that people are like in New York and in the office by the time we go back, but definitely want to create some sort of solution for folks that are eager for that FaceTime and just that, you know, IRL office experience too. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let's talk a little bit about funding. That part's very interesting to me. How did you know that you needed funding? What was that like as a young woman going about getting funding? And how is that like current relationship with investors? Yeah. I know that's a big three-part question. <laughs> no, happy to answer and happy to answer candidly. And I write about this in my book as well, which is coming out next year. But I actually was not – I was not the one that kind of identified – that we needed funding and what type of funding we needed. When we started Bulletin as a side project, as I said, I was really just looking to build out my writing portfolio and kind of dig my hands into creative work and work that supported small businesses and independent creators. I thought that was just marrying so many things that I really cared about. But I was not like the fundraising guru or the fundraising like visionary. Alana had worked at, you know, well-funded companies previously, and we were both working at a venture-backed company at the time. I didn't know what that meant. Like I knew what venture money was, like I knew the dictionary definition. And we actually at Contently had our Contently investors like come and talk to the team about what venture funding was and what it meant and how it informed like how you grow. But I was like 24 and I think had like a crush on a guy in my office. So I like wasn't paying attention. And I definitely like learned along the way. You know, Alana and I knew that we wanted to run the business full time at a certain point and we knew that we could you know, approach venture as an avenue. We could approach crowdfunding. We could we could do a self-funded direction, which we actually did the entire time we were running it part-time. But in getting into that fellowship program that I mentioned, which gave us $20,000, we kind of inherently got put into this venture environment. Y Combinator doesn't run that fellowship program anymore. They have other, you know, incredible programs like their core program, like their startup school, but they are like a venture community. So we got that $20,000. And then at the end of the three-month remote program with them, we did a remote pitch to venture investors that basically logged into this dashboard and were able to meet, review, and hear pitches from all the startups that had done the program. And that's how we met a few of our early investors. We actually also met one of our earliest investors through one of my friends in college who I had done a marketing project for who was plugged into the venture community. But I really didn't understand the implications until after going through Y Combinator, after starting to have conversations with investors and understanding what the growth expectations were, what the margin expectations were. The, like I really never understood like how venture companies could be like unprofitable and still go public. I mean, that's something I still definitely like wrestle with and think about all the time. But yeah, that's kind of just like candid insight into like my understanding of venture funding before we took it on. And that's why I go so deeply into explaining it as thoroughly as possible in the book, because I want women and founders, you know, of of all like genders, backgrounds, everything to understand their their funding resources, their financing resources, and how the way you finance your business actually influences how it grows and how it can grow. Actually, fundraising was very, it was very interesting. I mean, being two non-technical female founders, I definitely feel like female founders have a lot more to prove. I've talked about this a few times before, but there is a Harvard Business Review study that, you know, elucidates the experience of a female founder as being very different from a male founder. When a male founder walks into a room, 
investors ask, you know, what is, what's your big idea? How are you going to grow? How are you going to become a market leader? How are you going to take over the world? And a female founder walks into the room and the framing is very different. It's framed around, you know, what's going to undercut you? How are you going to fail? How are you going to block yourself off from competitors? Prove to me that this is a big enough idea. So that there is that burden of proof on female founders in a way that I think is experienced differently than male founders. I think that's obviously would even be further complicated if we were female founders of color. I think for Alana and I being two like petite white women with blonde bobs, like that definitely worked in our favor. And I think you know, being in the venture community, even though we were non-technical, you know, like being two female founders kind of with that visage helped us get the funding that we received. I will say that, you know, it's definitely super interesting to reflect on. You know, we were both profitable and making money when we raised our first round of funding. There are a lot of male-founded businesses that are not profitable and have no plan for generating revenue when they get their first round of funding and their second round of funding and their third round of funding. So I always find that very interesting. But yeah, it's it's definitely an uphill battle. I think that we experienced the best case scenario version of it because we were in the venture community from doing that program. As I said, our like race background, there are a lot of things that contributed to us you know, being a like welcome investment to the investors that we did meet. But yeah, you have to share a lot of numbers, a lot of data and kind of be prepared to prove yourself when you get in that in that room. And do you still feel like you're proving yourself a little bit to your current investors? It's actually, honestly, our current investors have been extremely supportive. We have, for the first time, an investor on our board with us. It's me, Alana, and our Series A investor and board member. And I, I really feel like all of our investors are, are rooting for us. You know, I think there is definitely some, I wouldn't say hesitation, but some degree of concern. You know, we're in retail. It's coronavirus. Stores are closed or, and reopening or they're reopening and they have to close again because of the virus potentially rebounding or rebounding in certain states that haven't closed at all. You know, consumer spending and what's going to happen there is up in the air with the with the current unemployment rate and the you know millions and millions that have filed for unemployment in the past few months. So I think there's definitely like some degree of concern and sensitivity around that, but they've definitely felt like supportive partners through all of this. That's amazing. It's so great to have investors that are supportive and want to see you succeed. I mean, I guess, you know, everyone succeeds if if you guys succeed. Yeah. And I think I think people are also just mindful. You know, this is an unprecedented yeah. time. And, you know, even some of the biggest, like most well-funded, well-known companies are are struggling at the moment. So it it kind of just feels like more of an equal playing field than it ever has. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Where do you see retail going in 2020? What are, I mean, obviously in our community, we have a lot of product-based businesses and in your community, obviously very, very same similar communities. So yeah, what are some like alternative ways brands can extend their reach in a wholesale-like way, maybe besides physical resale stores or what do you, what do you see for 2020 or moving into 2021? It's such a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm literally thinking about this 24 seven and like reading all the thought leadership, like. Twitter threads and like newsletters, it does feel very up in the air in a very weird way. You know, I I definitely think that coronavirus is not has not left us as we can see by, you know, caseloads 
or cases rising in certain states around the country or, you know, not subsiding, that's going to have a very long lasting effect on local brick and mortar retail. I do think for that reason, we're going to keep seeing a huge spike in brick and mortar retailers going online and really building out and maximizing their e-commerce retail platforms, you know, leveraging Instagram to do, you know, aggressive social selling through grid and stories and integrations with Shopify and things like that. I I think that that's going to continue. I know that Shopify saw like explosive growth in the number of merchants using their services over the past few months. I don't think that's going to wean whatsoever. I don't know. It's I'm kind of sitting here right now and this is I haven't said this out loud yet, so it it may be choppy, but you know, retailers were the like original curators. If you think about, you know, a local boutique, the store owner really sees their space as more than just like a store, it's really a gallery, you know, they're hand selecting the brands and products that they want to see more of out in the world that they want to introduce to their customers. And I think it's kind of a question of like, does the retailer stay that power curator and kind of keep that seat of power? Is there another kind of group or like movement that's going to lead like a different type of retail and curation? Like I like just speaking out loud off the top of my head, like, you know, TikTokers or like influencers, like is there, are they going to actually going to become the new retailers? And are they going to have you know, their own multi-brand retail sites like directly tied to their Instagram because of this new integration with Shopify and being able to open up an Instagram shop really quickly? And are they going to become, you know, the master curators that we turn to to share, you know, the most special brands and products with us? Like what is the future of physical retail when these stores reopen? Is it enough of an experience to kind of host product and welcome in customers and let them shop at their leisure? Are more retailers going to be integrating like services and food and snacks to create a more experiential environment for their shoppers? There's so much that that I feel like we don't know yet, but there are a lot of trends, I suppose, for for us to keep our eye on there. Super interesting. I I mean, the influencers, right, are sort of already doing that, right? They're collaborating with multiple brands and yep. they're boosting sales, absolutely, yep. for all of these brands. So, I mean, that's a that's definitely I could see that happening for sure. Yeah, just kind of that being being dialed up and just made more like formal and concrete and like productized in a way. Yeah. I yeah. definitely think there's there's a there there. Absolutely. Okay, let's switch gears just a little bit. Yeah. So you guys are two white women, you know, running this business, working with tons of retailers, tons of brands across the US. Are you guys international yet? No, not yet. Or is it all we, US? We do okay. some business in Canada, but not okay. in a major way. Okay. So, you know, we are going through a civil rights movement right now. What are you two and Bulletin doing to be anti-racist in your network and within the company? Yeah, I'm so glad that you're asking this. It's definitely been in a really interesting time, as you said, being two white female leaders running a small team, small but diverse team remotely during a pandemic and everyone kind of being in their own cities and in their own space, reacting to what's going on on social and what's going on locally. I mean, the first thing that we did was just let our team know that they can take time off, whether it's to actively protest or just simply process or self-educate and take that time off paid, no issue. We really wanted our team to feel like, you know, reacting and responding and absorbing and 
like analyzing what's going on should not be in conflict with them being productive and getting their work done and that we really see this as one and the same. And to your point, we do work with a very diverse community of brands and retailers. So that's, you know, time that I am like more than happy to to pay our team to take. I think it was really important to us and still is important to us to respond and continue taking action in a way that builds on our existing pillars and values and feels true to us and true to the business. We, you know, we made a donation. We we made as big of a donation as we could to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. But beyond that, you know, we asked ourselves like how can we paint a brighter financial future and more equitable financial future for the Black-owned businesses in our community, specifically focusing on our makers and our creators that are you know, leaning on their brands to generate either full-time income for them or they're doing it as a side hustle and it's their big dream to run their business full-time and how can we like even further support making that happen. So we have like a really exciting summer showcase coming up in July, specifically highlighting the Black-owned businesses on Bulletin. This isn't the first time that we've done a specific highlight and push to generate orders for the Black-owned businesses on our platform. We've done that through email marketing to our retailers earlier this year as well. But we really wanted to help broker like deeper awareness and connection between our brands and retailers, specifically our Black-owned brands, to help them build their empires and help them you know, create these retailer relationships and get even more consistent, reliable wholesale orders from the retailers in our community. So that's happening in mid-July. I'm really excited to go live with that. And I think that there's just been, you know, a lot that Alana and I have been thinking about as as two white leaders, as you said, like to be candid, like Juneteenth was not a national holiday that Bulletin took off and, and honored prior to this year. And we connected with our team and, you know, spoke with members on our team that were Juneteenth has meant a ton to them. And it's something that they wanted to take time off to celebrate and process. But even beyond that, we felt like, you know, this this is a national holiday that we need to honor, like this year and every year and did some reflection on why we didn't take that take that move initially and then we've been sharing as a team you know resources that we're all reading and finding valuable we you know spent the past few weeks having candid conversations with the team about ways that we can you know improve the team and just make being anti-racist more core to us as a business so yeah we've tried to you know address this on on a multitude of fronts but we're, we're not perfect. We've never been perfect. We've definitely erred along the way. And I think it's definitely been a really clarifying time to reflect on that and improve moving forward in, in the ways that we can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know we're running out of time here. So let's just end on the note of your book. Do you want to quickly tell us a little bit about your writing process? And I know that it was originally geared to come out this year and we were going to have you for our conference that is not happening. But so yeah, I mean, I can't wait to wait to read it. And yeah, tell us a little bit about that process and what we can expect from you next year. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited for it to come out. So Yeah, I really wanted to write this book because I felt like, and actually a lot is being written on this right now, like the death of the girl boss, as Mm -hmm. the the think pieces are are saying. I just read that. That what was that? That New York Times article. There's a New York Times one. There's an Atlantic one. There's a Medium one. Yeah, yeah. With Sophia stepping down, also. Yeah. 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 But, you know, when I started Bulletin, I was 24. As I said, I was a first time entrepreneur, and I just felt like all these like get 
get that bread, like money memes and all of the, you know, Instagrammable pictures at co-working spaces and this like hashtag girl boss, like movement was not reflecting my experience as an entrepreneur. I felt like being an entrepreneur was kind of being fed to me on Instagram and through like conferences and programming as this like, you know, lean in movement and kind of glamorous lifestyle that it's not. I mean, you know, from running a business, it's really shitty. It's really taxing. You're like constantly dealing with imposter syndrome. You're putting out fires. You're like waking up every day with no degree more of certainty that like you're going to get the outcome with your business that you want. And it really just made me quite depressive and feeling really negative and down on myself all the time. I was like dealing with a lot of negative self-talk. And I just started having candid conversations with other small businesses and female founders. And they were like, yes, like why, you know, why is it that we're talking about entrepreneurship as this like glamorous, aspirational thing when it's like, you know, you're in the mud all the time. And so I really wanted to tell that story and kind of talk about what it was like to build a business from the ground up. We didn't have any like family money. We didn't have venture connections prior to getting into that program, like pretty randomly. And it was a lot to navigate. But I was also really I had a lot of conviction around like it's this shouldn't just be me and Alana's story. You know, as I said, like we're two petite blonde white girls and we have venture funding and started a business and not everyone will have that same story. Not everyone can relate to that story. And it was really important to me that any business owner, any entrepreneur picking up this book can find something to relate to. And I interviewed about 40 other women-owned businesses for the book and kind of weave their stories and their experiences throughout the piece so that you as a reader can see what it's like to be a business that's still running itself part-time and hasn't gone full-time yet and what those pros and cons look like for a business that's literally weighing them right in this moment. I wanted to tell the story of brands that had crowdfunded to launch that hadn't gone the venture route. I wanted to tell stories of, you know, a diverse community of of brands and the the ways that they decided to hire their first employee or the ways that they decided to finance their companies, the ways that they decided to brand their businesses and tell their story. So yeah, it's kind of like a survey view of all these different small businesses or or I guess not even small in some cases, but businesses of all different, you know, backgrounds, stories, ethnicities, means and how they've kind of tackled the same questions, issues, concerns that Alana and I did. And yeah, it's kind of like part business book and like very actionable and very how to, but a lot of it is also memoir driven sharing, you know, our story, the like emotional story and highs and lows of evolving the business and then doing the same for other businesses and female founders that are featured in the book. Well, I can't wait to read it. I'm very excited for when it comes out. Are you, You're going to do a tour if, if tours exist in 2021, right? Yeah, it's all very like TBD what we're going to be yeah. able to do to promote it. But okay. ho- hopefully there's a tour. Fingers crossed. I'll definitely yes. let you know. Okay. Well, it's been so lovely having you, Ali. Why don't you tell us one more time where we can find you? Amazing. Thank you so much, Phoebe. It was really great chatting with you. You can find me at Ali Kriegs is my Instagram handle. That's A-L-I-K-R-I-E-G-S. You can find Bulletin at at bulletin.co, B-U-L-L-E-T-I-N.co. And if you want to apply to our community as a brand or retailer, you can go to www.bulletin.co. Perfect, Allie. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Hey, makers, brands, and artists. Do you like free marketing? Do you like lifting your friends up? 
Are you constantly sharing brands on your Instagram, sharing your favorite products, and spreading the word about local makers? Well, there's an app for that. We at GGC are all about lifting each other up. We're also about systems. We're also about karma. These are things that we love. And we found an app that combines all of these things. And it's based on something called karmic marketing. And guess what? This system is free. Yes, free. It's called AmpJar. This is how it works. You shout out AmpJar brands that you love on your Insta, in your emails, and on your after checkout page. So in return, you build up karma credits. These credits are good for people to share your brand. So for instance, you post about three brands you love on your Insta stories, then you will show up on the after checkout page automatically on brands you're matched with. Brands can shout you out on Instagram stories and emails as well. And it just spirals from there. It's like a pay it forward system. And here's the deal. The system is completely free if you shout out three brands a week. Free. Otherwise, you pay $22 a month. So you can just add this into your weekly tasks, shouting out three brands a week, easy peasy, in your emails, on your Instagram stories. Or if you like a more evergreen approach, that means you don't have to do the work, simply add the Amchar code into your after checkout page. And if you make three sales that week, you are golden because that means that you're, you have shown a brand three times in the after checkout page. So after checkout page is great because your customers have already paid you. So you're not losing that sale or anything and customers have their wallet out and are ready to still buy and support. So you can pick the brands that you match with. So you wouldn't be working with a brand that is too similar or a completely different vibe. You have control over who you match with. So yes, Ampjar, free system to lift up your favorite brands. Or you can join for just 22 each month for more visibility. So head to bit.ly, so bit.ly slash ampjar, A-M-P-J-A-R. So bit.ly slash capital A-M-P-J-A-R, ampjar. And it looks like they're working on a little Girl Gang Craft badge so that you can make sure that you're shouting out other people from the Girl Gang Craft community. Thank you so much for listening to the Girl Gang Craft podcast. Head to girlgangcraft.com slash podcast for show notes and more. See you next time.